This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Kier Holmes is a garden designer and writer, regularly contributing to the likes of Martha Stewart, Better Homes and Gardens, Gardenista, Sonoma Magazine, Marin Magazine, and Sunset. She is also a children's garden and science educator. In her writing and her designing, she focuses on low-cost and low-impact, chemical-free, richly textured, visually dynamic spaces that are full of life. All of this is well documented in her newest book, The Garden Refresh, How to Give Your Yard Big Impact on a Small Budget. Kier, I am very happy to welcome you to Cultivating Place to talk more about all of this. Hi, thank you for having me. This is such an honor. So I have given you this very basic introduction, Kier, but if you were to distill down into kind of one or or maybe a set of primary directives or organizing principles about your relationship with gardens and plants right now, what would that be? That would be for me and for my readers and for my clients to keep gardening, to pay attention, listen to your gardens, evolve them. You know, a garden is never done. So it, it's the journey of gardening. And as someone, you know, who designs them, maintains them, cares for them, worries about them, <laughs> it is just the process. Um, there is never an end goal. And I, and, uh, you know, I, as a perennial student, no pun intended, mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm constantly learning and I want my clients to learn, even if they aren't taking care of it or that involved just to, to appreciate them. Yeah. And, you know, I think everything in the garden refresh really encourages all of that uh, awareness and relationship that you were just distilling down. And I so appreciate that, especially at this time when we are looking to our gardens and and you were writing this book uh, in the pandemic the you know not that we're out of it but in the heart of like lockdown and and the the pandemic population turning to their gardens in these new ways that it, it is a book that also addresses how gardens are helping us to address meet help with all of these colliding urgencies yep i agree and also you know, at least my own garden became sort of like a place of therapy. And so my husband actually created more garden beds out of reclaimed wood for me because I was like, oh oh my God, I can't go to the store. I need to grow more herbs. I need to grow more lettuces. And so we were scrappy and he went to his yard and built me bigger beds and we planted seeds and starts. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my God, you know, and I grew up with hippie parents. So it's always like, you know, against the man. And so it was like, I don't need to support, (laughs) you know, whole foods. I can grow my own. And um, I don't have to battle the crazy crowds and wear masks. And so, you know, my garden became this place of, of retreat and, and calm and control Mm -hmm. and nourishment. Mm -hmm. So to be able to write this book during that time was so, it was like, I was just tapping into all of that. And it felt like my nerves were so raw. And so the energy just sort of came out in my fingers when I was typing. Yeah. yeah. You just led us right into our next questions with a, let's see, hippie parents and a scrappy, a scrappy response with your husband to, uh, you know, the extremes of our pandemic lives, but also to this lifelong relationship with the garden. Let's, let's go back a little bit before we go forward with the book. Tell us a little bit about where you were born and raised and who were the people and places and plants that grew you into a woman for whom the garden would be a career, the garden would be a calling, and the garden would be this place where you exercise control over the world you want to grow. So I was uh, born at Marin General, grew up in Mill Valley, started in a super duper hippie house um, in Cascade that my dad built from reclaimed lumber and stained glass windows. Um, I don't remember that house, but I see pictures of it in Life Magazine. 
So it was, it received a lot of notoriety for being pretty uh, resourceful and sort of ahead of, ahead of its time. But my first memory of sort of garden life was my mother was also a perennial student and she uh, took classes at College of Marin and she took uh, biology and she took like plant ID. And so I remember sitting on her bed and somehow she chose me over my sister and I had to uh, test her with flashcards. And so I would, you know, I would say like dogwood and then she would reply and I would. And so, I mean, hours spent testing her and, and I think it just absorbed into my brain, the crazy names. Yeah. I can't, you know, I can't, I cannot leave them. And so that was sort of like my first dive into sort of like horticulture. Yeah. And then we had, my grandma lived in Pasadena and she had this, um, these amazing gardenia bushes. And that was sort of like my first flower was, oh my gosh, I cannot believe there is a flower that smells yeah. so good. And I obsessed about it. And to this day, you know, I, plant, I try to plant gardenias wherever my clients will let me. Um, it was, that was the flower. Then our next door neighbor, she was an older woman and she had a massive fuchsia on her porch. And I remember as a child popping the fuchsias, the hanging yeah. fuchsias. And like, that was so exciting to me. I was like, there can be a plant that can be so bold and so entertaining at the same time. <laughs> and, and I used to, I think she didn't like it that I popped them because I felt like I was sort of like violating them in a way, but she saw that I was so happy doing that. So my mom also, she not only studied at college Marin, but she was a crazy seed saver. And so one of my earliest childhood memories also was driving down Bay Street in San Francisco and my mother hollering out to my dad to pull over so she could collect hollyhock seeds on like a really busy street. And so we would, and I talk about this in my book, I think where I like, you know, was hiding because I was so mortified that my mother would actually <laughs> do this in, in public, you know, in daylight day, in right. public. And she would just be like scurrying, trying to collect as many as she could. And then she'd, you know, pop back into the car. And so eventually I sort of also became her um, shopping cart. Like whenever we'd go to botanical gardens or hikes, she would stuff our pockets with seeds that she would find. And later on, she'd get home and wouldn't know what she had collected. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> right. And it didn't matter. It was just like, I have these seeds. I'm going to do something right. with them. So, you know, of course, now I find myself doing that. Yeah. Um, when I, when I go places, I like, you know, I, I have to collect seeds if, of these like unique things that I see. And sure. Sometimes, you know, they end up in the washing machine and they never make it, but it's funny how, you know, these childhood things that may have been traumatic now, all of a sudden I'm repeating right. it. And right. Note, note to listeners, always ask permission before you collect seeds. Exactly. And remember it is actually illegal to, to pick flowers or collect seeds on public land uh, without a permit. So just getting in our caveat right there. Uh, yep. It is a strong, strong pull in us as gardeners to want to try new seed or take little cuttings. And um, thankfully, it's also a very strong calling in most of us as gardeners to want to share those things with other people. So in general, if you ask permission, you will actually get more than you you asked for to start with, right? Exactly. Yeah. And so that's why, yeah, my, yeah. And I, yeah, I should have interjected that, that my mom was, you know, she tried to teach, um, and besides the Bay right. street, you know, that was like a totally right. abandoned right. lot. Um, but you know, she, she, you know, being, um, this sweet little bird, you know, she did teach me that it's like, you you know, you respect the land yeah. and by, asking people, sometimes you get more than you, you get overwhelmed. Right. And so they're like, <laughs> exactly. Because you show, you're showing enthusiasm, right? Right. right? And, an, and an interest. Well, I loved this sentence in your introduction, which is something like my father was driven to buck the system and my mother was compelled to nurture the ecosystems. And that lovely kind of marriage of these two different uh, approaches to the world that came together to create these great gardens that you were were educated and grown in was pretty pretty phenomenal and you know the book is a great uh, adventure of of learning and tips and information and ideas 
but it's also, if nothing else, everyone should go look at the upside down potting shed as a picture because it's super <laughs> cool and a very literal take on the idea of of turning gardening upside down. I loved it, loved it, Kier. Yeah, no, and that and that was his whole ethos was just like whatever it is, I'm going to do the opposite. Right, right. Opposite day. Um, and, uh, total, and he, that's how he lived his life was just, and so yeah, growing up in under that was always, you know, even how he planted was just very haphazard yeah. and very free. And it was like, you know, it, it'll, if it survives, it survives, yeah. right. You just sort of like, you let it unfold. And so, yeah, that potting shed, that is pretty fun. And I think that's probably, that's part of the reason why that garden won um, the golden trowel. Yeah was that it was just, you know, people hadn't seen that. No, no. Well, I, I, I still have it until I saw your picture of it. So, right. um, and there's some lovely like liberation there. And this, this is, there's a strong sense of this through the book as well, that there's this permission slip to kind of learn everything you can, but also try things that you, uh, that you want to try, even if they don't turn out, there's this, you know, empowerment of, activating and you say this in your first sentence activating your own creativity and resourcefulness and i so appreciated that yeah i mean i think you know i i constantly have this notion that it's like you know life is so short and there are so many plants to try yeah. you know and so that's why i try to encourage my clients too that's like do, if you don't love this right and it's just consuming you or it's taking resources or effort yeah. it's like let's take it out let's compost it right? Let's try something new, yeah. something that actually serves a purpose. Yeah. And, some, and I think also that brings people joy, mm, right? I yeah. mean, you shouldn't look at something and you're constantly reminded of sort of decay or struggle. And I love, again, how you associate that joy and that positive feeling with also being more resourceful, with using our natural resources wisely, as well as using our financial resources wisely, that a, a garden should not destroy the earth and it should not break your bank. And any garden, you know, magazine or book or person who is advocating otherwise has it wrong. Right. And I think, you know, that goes back to what I mentioned that my dad built our house, you know, completely from recycled lumber and every, the, <laughs> even when we moved um, out of the total hippie house to sort of a regular house, we still had a lot of redwood and it was always like the, the toilet paper holder he made from redwood, the pothole. I mean, every, every like the lamps were made out of colanders. Nothing was normal right? There was always something that you could use and, and transform yeah. it into a new thing. And so I think I've sort of carried that also into gardens too, where it's like, you know, everything doesn't have to right. be from a catalog, right? It's like right. flea markets, swap meets, turn, turn a pot upside down, you know, to, to sort of go with my father's yeah. feelings, you know, and that sometimes is hard to, to get other people sort of rallied behind, if they're used to seeing, you know, a certain style on like Pinterest and Howes and all that, but I don't, I can't shake it. <laughs> this is Cultivating Place. Kier Holmes is a gardener, designer, and writer. Her new book is The Garden Refresh, how to give your yard big impact on a small budget. We'll be right back for more with Kier after a break. Stay with us. Hey, it's Jennifer. Kier Holmes notes her father's and mother's and her commitment to being perennial students. There's something to that, isn't there? And I think as we look towards the solstice and all of our next circle around the sun, being a perennial student might be very high on all of our list of intentions. I hope so. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with garden designer and writer Kier Holmes, who is walking us through the takeaways from her resourceful new book, The Garden Refresh. As we come back, Kier is sharing more about 
her professional path to the garden design, consulting, and advocacy she focuses on now. After high school, I went to Berkeley and got a social studies major. My dad was in advertising. Um, He was an art director. So I kind of, and my sister uh, was going to end up going into advertising as well. So I was kind of like, well, this is sort of probably where I'm going to go because I had grown up also writing a lot. Um, And so I was like, well, I can, I'll I'll be a copywriter. So uh, graduating from college, got a few advertising jobs, some in LA, um, some up here wrote ironically for like McDonald's, even though I was a vegetarian, Um, (laughs) sold Toyota cars and eventually got laid off. And it was like, thank goodness. I am not destined to be sitting behind a computer all day in an office. I need to be outdoors. So my husband at the time was doing landscaping and I was like, well, gosh, I can do this. Like it's in my bones. I I literally know how to take care of a garden. So I joined him and he and I um, did landscaping together, a little pickup truck, our dog and a lawnmower. And we went around and I would design the gardens and we would install them together. The two of us, you know, sometimes in flip-flops and it was like super, it was, you know, another scrappy thing. Um, And then eventually I was like, well, goodness, I miss writing. I think I'm going to write about gardens. And so I just started pitching to every place that I could different Mm -hmm. ideas and ended up writing for Marin magazine a lot, did a garden, started the garden section there. Uh, got myself into Martha Stewart, Better Homes and Gardens, uh, National Geo for Kids. Uh, now I write for Sonoma Magazine. Uh, and so I just basically was, and Gardenista, I write a lot mm-hmm. for them. And so it was it was like this light bulb went off where I realized that I could do both. Yeah. I could take care of gardens and write about them. And so um, how many years of doing that, I realized I'm going to, put them all in a bowl, mix them up and bake a book. <laughs> See, it is like a cookbook. I said that right from the start. I That's know. Great. And it That's is. Great. It is. <laughs> well, okay. And so you, you at that point have, you know, a pretty thriving landscape design and, and install and maintenance business still, still with your husband. No, oh. actually. So he, um, to sort of, yeah, to backtrack, he, well, two landscapers were, were like, oh gosh, in the rain, this is not good. So he now is a general contractor. Um, and I was like, well, I have to keep doing plants. So that's why I, I sort of have sort of my own thing going on. And sometimes we join together, but, um, but yeah, I, I, you know, and I have to, I have to keep doing the maintenance for certain gardens. Cause they're like my children. Mm-hmm. And it is one <laughs> of the, um, catch points in good garden design is if you don't do the maintenance too many times the the people who take it on either move or or they they don't know how to care for it or they can't they don't have the time or or the knowledge and so if it's going to survive uh, and evolve beautifully it is it is required that there is um you know maintenance that is at the same level as the garden. And I think this is one of the great pressures on our horticultural world right now is getting that trained force of good, intelligent, well-informed gardeners taking care of our garden spaces. If they're really going to be biodiverse and uh, appropriate for habitat and, you know, combating climate change. And I think also keeping it safe and healthy. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the first thing I ask when I, you know, meet a new client and they say they have gardeners, I'm like, I hope they don't use Roundup. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, it's like that, that is so, I mean, you know, you walk into any Home Depot right by the checkout is like all this Roundup and it's insane. It's insane. And, and so I end up standing on my soapbox a lot and sort of like waving my um, my fist, you know, and being like, you cannot use this, you know, if I, if I take care of your garden or not, you know, I keep, I tell them, I'm like, 
please, you need to dispose of that. And dispose of it safely, uh, whatever exactly. whatever that means. Take it to the hazardous waste. And it's, it's, exactly. it's one of these things, Kier. I was giving a talk for a, a large garden group in central Ohio last week. And I one of the questions from the audience was from a professional landscaper. And, you know, he was responding to somebody saying, you know, and we have to stop using chemicals. And he, he was sort of like, well, there are certain cases where, you know, I, I, I don't know, I, there's not, there's almost nothing else to do. And, and I, I have, I've been thinking about this a lot. And I think one of the things I come away with is it's almost like, uh, and this is going to sound like I'm riling up people, which I'm not. I feel like it's along the lines of gun control that there may be a time and a place for toxic chemicals, but they need to be regulated and they need to be overseen as though they are the the destructive potential that they are. And so only the licensed, only the trained, only the insured should be able to have access to these destructive materials. And then those people need regulation and oversight so that if there is abuse, there are consequences for that abuse, like anything else. And that's sort of where I'm standing on this now. We as regular home gardeners off the shelf should have no access to these materials. Exactly. Because I mean, it's like, yeah, you see, I mean, I know how incredibly toxic it is to women, especially. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I think, and I think the information sometimes it's just not mm -hmm. out there and people, they, I mean, I'm surprised that people don't even know what GMO, like people are like GMO, what's yeah. that? And I'm like, are you, are you kidding right, me? Right. Like, right. And so, you know, part of it, I feel like is just lack of knowledge. Right. Um, and so that's why I think I get on my little soapbox mm -hmm. whenever I can. Yeah. Um, but, you know, but, but back to your point, you know, about, you know, the main, that's why in my, in my book, I, you know, even have obsession about maintenance and it's like you know the simple things i mean it's it it goes back to even what i said in the beginning that it's like you just have to observe and like right. really look at your garden and you can mitigate a lot of problems by just being there in the beginning and and looking at it before it becomes like you know a tsunami yeah. okay so that pulls us right into the actual book itself so the catalyst for this you've walked us through, I think, but if there's anything you want to add to that, add it. As you are looking at this big bowl of materials, I mean, I think I'll ask you exactly what you would ask a, a, a potential client. What do you want to achieve from this book? What is your goal and who is your target audience, Kier? I mean, I would hope that the book is for everybody from someone who's experienced to someone who is just starting mm -hmm. out. And as, as someone who, you know, for example, I grew up reading Sunset Magazine, right? And I loved flipping through it and ripping out mm. pages and going like, I'm going to save that. I'm going to, I'm going to bake that. I'm going to cook that. I'm going to grow that. I'm going to go here. Right. And so when I was writing this book, I was like, I want my book to be a book that people are putting tabs in that people are folding down pages circling things going I'm gonna I'm gonna try that I'm gonna use that as a person who reads you know obviously just like you reads a lot of garden books you know I want takeaways I want top tips I want lists and I've been collecting you know sort of in a semi-neurotic way many lists for years where I was like why do I need to keep reinventing the wheel for myself right. I'm gonna make a list of deer resistant plants, right? So when I design a garden, I go to my list, I've got my list and it's there. And so I was like, I have to put this in the book, right? Like, I, you know, this, this is something that people can just flip through. And also I was, I didn't want the book to be something you had to read from the front to the back, back to my dad. He, for some reason would read from the back to the front sometimes. And so I do I that tendency. Yeah. Do I do. You? Oh, thank goodness. Okay, good. So I was like, I want people to start the back. Maybe they start in the middle. Yeah. And this is why I think I automatically thought this is like a cookbook. And, and part of that is like, we all have garden books, right? And we all have cookbooks, I think. I, I'm pretty safe in saying that for, for most people listening. And there are some that are very specialized, but then there are others that are just your general, like, 
this is an overview of all the things you should think about. Like you should know how to, you know, bake a meatloaf, boil an egg, bake some bread, um, you know, and then throw in a little dessert and maybe a vegetable. And and this is what I got from, from your book and the importance of this moment in time when we have just gone in the U.S. from... I think it was 38% of all U.S. households self-identified as engaging in gardening in the last census pre-pandemic. There was a fantastic garden survey or, you know, population survey early 2021, I believe, and it was published in 2022, indicating that now we are at over 100 million households engaging in gardening post-pandemic post social justice, you know, chaos and hopefully reset. And a lot of them are just brand new or, you know, if they know a little bit, it's still just a little bit. And so this is a fantastic little, you know, basic book to look through and get your head kind of in the right direction, no matter what you're thinking about, whether it's you know, your pathways, your mulch, your irrigation, your plant selection. It, it's just, it's a very comprehensive overview. And I really appreciated that. And I tell you, I did start from the back because I was very, Yay! I was very compelled <laughs> by that final um, chapter title, When Time is Money. And I thought to myself, when is time not money? You know, a little bit in so many ways. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. so, um, yeah. but I especially appreciated, so I'm going to pull us back to the front. I especially yeah. appreciated that title right in the beginning, going to what you were just saying about paying attention, listening and learning through observation. And it's titled Befriend Your Sight. I loved that, Kier. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, and I feel like, you know, as someone who, um, well, I've recently totally dove into the world of of birds and watching birds and their antics and appreciated my garden even more. And it's like, I've been trying to sort of share that with my clients too, because a lot of the times they don't even walk around their garden or they don't know something is blooming. Mm -hmm. And so um, it becomes more and more urgent for me to to share that with people that it's like just take those few moments to walk around to listen to observe notice things notice you know try to teach them to listen for irrigation leaks mm. i'm like you hear a hissing i'm like that's an irrigation leak um and so you know there are so many there are so many elements about that um but also like when i meet a new client i'm always like you know let's take our time right like really study the sun study the frost, study the patterns. But I'm going to stop you here because that, um, that pay attention to the sun. Yeah. It came up. uh, I saw your, your section on it and it's, you know, one of these basic things that people who are designers or instructors tell gardeners all the time, actually record and yet still people don't understand. So you will go to a, a space and they'll say, oh no, this is full sun. But full sun is actually a very specific term. It doesn't mean that it gets full sun for one hour in the day. You really need six to exactly. seven to eight in the summer of full sun. Yeah. And and in relation to that too, I mean and it goes back to a garden is the journey and an evolution is that what your garden, you know, two years ago had full sun. And now because trees have grown, it's part sun and people are like, Oh, things aren't thriving, you know? Oh, but look, you know, this used to be pretty. And I'm like, well, now, you know, everything has changed and, and, you know, the trees have changed, the sun patterns changed. So now your garden needs to change and we need, you know, and we can change it together. And so just the letting go and mm-hmm. being willing to pivot and alter is huge. And people get so like cemented into things and, or even cemented into the idea of like, but it used to be so pretty. And it's like, well, yes, agreed. I'm sure it was, but yeah. it's got a new life now. Right. So now we need to make it in a new pretty, whatever, yep. whatever that means. Exactly. And, and part of what that means, I think, is that permission slip. So in um so the book is in three 
four parts. Uh, the first one is that assessing the space. And that includes this idea of like, what do you want? What is actually there now? What are the conditions right now? And what are you dreaming of? I love that. Then you go into, you know, like, if you're not looking for a big a big overhaul. You walk through quick and easy upgrades. Really appreciated that. And I appreciated, you know, again, the freshness of like some style and some some color and some resourcefulness and some creativity. And here you start getting into some of the plant and construction aspects of a garden, um, including mulch and lawn, uh, which I really appreciated. Part three deep into plants. Here's where some of your great lists come in, like plants for fragrance, plants for deer, plants for salty wind, plants for, you know, full sun, plants, you know, it was a, it, like full of rich lists. And um, edibles, some about making and saving plants. So the seed saving you were talking about, dividing your perennials, growing cuttings, that kind of thing. And then the final one is the nitty gritty. So this is that end part where you might want to start because it's about yeah. using water, taking care of your soil, uh, you know, what you might need to apply to your garden to help it be healthy, uh, as well as feed your pollinators, take care of the the ecosystem health, you know? So this is sort of the mom part. And the, yeah. the, the one right above <laughs> was the dad part, which is right. right. Yeah. <laughs> of these funny. sections, what seemed mm -hmm. to be like, the most surprising or or the sections that were most going to be useful to this hungry world of gardeners out there? Well, I feel like, I mean, that's an interesting question because I feel like, or my hope would be that it addresses so many different areas that it would, uh, that it would appeal to so many different yeah. types of people about where they are, yeah. right? Yeah. And it's like some people who just want the design part, they can dive into that. The other people that want to make their own yogurt spray, right? It's like, they're like, awesome, done, right? And so that's why I tried to, you know, sort of touch on a, so many different levels. That, and then also it's like, maybe you're not into that right now, but later on you can go back and be like, oh gosh, now I actually do want to try to make my own home remedies. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's there you know, of course my heart is in the plants. And I even say that, I mean, it's like, that's the root of me. And so, you know, I can geek out on plant combinations. I can make a book just on, on my right, combinations. Right. Um, my phone is like thousands of pictures of that. Um, so, you know, I love that, but it's like, that's just that that's the icing, you know, I mean, it's really the core is the soil and the prep and the thinking and the thoughtfulness. This is Cultivating Place, and this week I am joined by Kier Holmes, a gardener, designer, and writer, whose new book, The Garden Refresh, How to Give Your Yard Big Impact on a Small Budget, is just the kind of resourceful mindset we all could use a little more of. We'll be right back after a break with more from Kier about specifics in the book. Stay with us. Hey, so befriending our site. Don't you just love that articulation? I applaud this perspective and how Kier Holmes reframes this age-old gardening practice of studying and knowing our sites. From how the sun moves across our space to where the water comes from and where it travels to, and how wildlife access the space when and from what direction how the seasons shift, how the soil changes. Let's all be friends with our sights. Heck, let's be really good, even best friends. And we're back now to our conversation with designer and writer Kier Holmes, author of The Garden Refresh, How to Give Your Yard Big Impact on a Small Budget. As we come back, Kier is sharing tips for gardeners on things like what to look for when you head to the nursery. Well, as someone, yeah, who, I mean, I spend so much time in nurseries and I feel like, you know, going into a nursery and 
really paying attention here as well and noticing that tags can be mis, you know, things are mislabeled, things are outgrowing the pots, things are diseased and plants are so expensive now. Like every time I go, I feel like, you know, like a four inch is like $10 mm -hmm. now. And so it's even, it feels even more important now to make wise selections mm -hmm. um, and to do your research before you get to the nursery as someone who is like kind of a, I could, I could probably easily slip into like plant hoarderness, you know, could like want every plant mm -hmm. that's cool and new um, to, to sort of have a list before you go to, so that you don't end up buying a collection of random plants that you don't have a space for and that aren't suitable to your right. site. Right. Um, Cause that, that can be an expensive hobby. So, yeah. So that's why I tried to sort of like give people a little bit of a, um, like a shopping list for that, for their mental state before going to a nursery, especially if you go to like Flora Grub, right? I mean, it's like kid in a candy yeah, store. Yeah. Our, our nicer specialty nurseries. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's hard. It, it's yeah, it's hard. It's good. It's good oh. though. I love them. <laughs> no, it's, it is really yeah. good. <laughs> um, okay. So, this brings me to one of the other tips and recommendations you make to people early in the process that I really appreciated. And that was after you've befriended your site, after you have, um, you know, come up with your list of what do you want from this garden? What do you want from each space in the garden? And your recommendation was then not to go to Pinterest, not to go to books, not to go to, you know, any other online source, but to actually drive around your neighborhood with your camera and a little notebook and see what you like to walk, to drive, to talk to people outside their houses, take pictures of things you like and that look healthy and happy where they are. This was such important information, Kier. So, and, and just explain why. Yeah. Well, I mean, so I, you know, it comes from how I sort of do the process, mm -hmm. which is go to a new client. They say there's no deer. And I'm like, ah, I think there might be deer. Right. Or they say, oh, I'm pretty sure this is going to thrive. And I'm like, well, I'm going to walk around your neighborhood. And so I just drive the neighborhood, see what's thriving. You know, they say they don't get frost, drive around. Oh, looks like, you know, everything here can take the frost, not the frost. And so it's really like, site specific and taking that extra step just to really look around and for the client to look around and actually see plants on site and growing and they can be like I love the way that mm -hmm. looks and it's like great let's add that to the list because you know plants in books look totally yeah. different sometimes than how they look when they're like full grown or in a site um and so that's why I really try to encourage people to do that as well yeah. Um, and I get so much inspiration just by driving around yeah. um, and just taking little bits and pieces and not trying to duplicate, but just like learning. Yeah. 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 And, and it gives you, it's, it, this is one of the things that's a recurring theme is this idea of a reality check. Like what really will grow here? What, and, and like you say, what does it really look like in place in your exact location um, makes you make better decisions because to pick, you know, you know, I'd be picking. I don't know, minimalist gardens in South Carolina. And I live in interior Northern California and I'm a complete clutter person. So like I pick things that look one way, but I live a very different way. So I think to like get that reality check is is a healthy, yep. a healthy thing. Yep, yep. And even in relation to soil too, looking around saying like, does it look like it's pretty rocky, right? Does it look like it's going to be serpentine or clay? Yeah. Um, and being realistic about that too. Yeah. Um yeah. And that is, that goes back to the sort of take a big reality check yeah. before sort of diving in. And I think we can do the same thing in terms of what feeds our wildlife because pollinator and pollinator support uh, is a big element in the book and being able to see what plants in your neighborhood are drawing in um, the bees and the butterflies and the, you know, dragonflies and the hummingbirds and you know the dragonflies are of course predators coming to eat the other things but that's a good too right. um yeah yeah and I think that gives you a strong sense of what is a really ecologically resource or or useful and contributing tree shrub perennial annual yep I have to say that I've been planting um tithonia and it is insane mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. I have it is never, a magnet. Oh my gosh. So I have two outside my back um, bedroom door that my mom grew from seed. And it, I have never seen so many monarchs and swallowtails and hummingbirds and bees on this plant. So for, for listeners, describe exactly, like give the real name and describe what it looks like outside your, your bedroom window. Okay. So I, I think it's called torch flower mm-hmm. or, or Mexican and, sunflower. I right? think I've heard too. Mexican yep. sunflower. Both yeah. names. Okay. Yep. And, and so she grew from seed, she grew a one that's probably six feet tall. Mm-hmm. And then she grew this other one that's like two feet tall. Hmm. And so she was super excited, brought them over because she knew I had, I had planted them from starts the prior year and knew that they were successful. And so I got her some seeds. And I'm like, you can do this. And so she's like, great. So she made this little like makeshift nursery in her, in her house. And they are now probably six feet tall. They're, they're kind of a little gangly. I mean, I wouldn't say it's like the most beautiful plant, but when the flowers come, these bright daisy orange flowers that with routine pruning, as soon as they finish um, their, their show, you cut them down so that the next round can come and not, not super thirsty, but oh my gosh, the amount of monarchs that are coming. And they, and I, I think I, on my Instagram, I videoed it because like, he is just like in love. This monarch is in love with this yeah, plant. Yeah. And there may be what, like four, four inches across, maybe max. And they're yeah. this, as you yeah. say, this like vivid orange with this vivid yellow center. And so just picture that listeners of this beautiful color form up against a deep blue sky covered oh. with creatures. And they are like six feet tall and ours like the birds and and even the squirrels, I think, are so excited about this plant that they kind of get knocked over. So the pruning is helpful. Um, yeah. And they're they're maybe not a great cut flower, but they just are so attractive yeah. in the garden. They're fantastic. And definitely yep. let the last couple go to seed so that you can save that yep. seed and grow it on just like your mom did. Yeah. Exactly. Mm. And then, I mean, the, the petals are almost iridescent mm-hmm. when the sun hits mm-hmm. them. I mean, it's, it's a pretty spectacular yeah. sight um, with the orange monarchs. Um, and then the other plant that I've been sort of um, obsessing about in relation to butterflies are zinnias, like the really tall ones. I mean, super magnet. Yeah. And that's another great one to grow from seed and is an amazing cut yeah. flower. Yeah. And so I've been sort of geeking out on those. <laughs> and and there, I think for me, zinnias are one of those ones that kind of uh, upend the idea that non-native annuals will be great pollinator plants. They're great, yes. especially for the butterflies. And so, you know, really pay attention to what plants are contributing ecologically because they were, um, our zinnias have been covered with butterflies yeah. and that makes me so right? happy. Yeah, yeah. So you get just sort of a little bit of, everything out of that flower. So as we're coming towards the end of of our conversation and you think back about the joys you experienced in putting the book together and, and maybe even kind of refreshing yourself on all these things you do know and you you have been able to achieve in in your gardens and with your clients. What are your greatest takeaways? Pierre, what are my greatest takeaways? Um, personally, yeah. You mean, yeah. Um, I think just a an ability to just observe and see everything as art. <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, everything to me is like, and I also my dad was an artist, so we were surrounded by paintings and sculptures and. Um, my, you know, my childhood was filled with either an art gallery or a garden. And so they're sort of the yeah. same thing. Right. So that's why I see, you know, I see nature as like, it's a constant painting and it's a constant piece of yeah. art. And it's those details too. Like I can go macro and I can go micro. And so when I was writing the book, I totally went micro in some spots and then was able to sort of pull mm-hmm. out and sort of see the bigger picture sort of like the overarching goal and wish and hope yeah it was a really fascinating process to like sort of distill all this information that was sort of floating around in my head and sort of compile it into into one thing and it it was it was a very very sort of like cathartic rewarding experience 
So I would love to end with you reading a selection from the introduction to the book, Kier. Yep. Uh, it says, I consciously and unconsciously absorbed my parents' sentiment, practices, and ethos like leaves absorbing sunlight. In my 20 plus years of designing and maintaining landscapes, I carry these imaginative ways of creating and caring for a garden, always wondering how to create a beautiful, productive, and healthy garden or refresh and update a tired one without spending crazy amounts of cash or using an excess of our Earth's valuable natural resources. The effects of climate change and our recent global plant pandemic, which has not only restricted our movements but limited our physical contact with others, are creating a mandate for us to take action. We have a growing awareness of the need to change things up, turn things upside down, and pivot and morph in ways we never imagined. Now is the time to start buying less and enjoying more, spending less but having more. I'm reminded every day of the reasons why we need to connect with nature and the earth. One way to regain that crucial connection is through gardening, which gives us a sense of belonging to a special place while we experience the physicality of digging in soil, the instinctual nurturing of plants, the scientific approach to observing life, and a childlike sense of awe. Beautiful. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for being mm -hmm. a guest on the program today. It's been a pleasure to speak with you and congratulations on your book. Thank you. That was fun. We could, I, I could be talking about plants for hours. <laughs> Pierre Holmes is a garden designer and writer, regularly contributing to magazines such as Martha Stewart, Better Homes and Gardens, Gardenista, and Sunset. She is also a children's garden and science educator. In her writing and her designing, she focuses on low-cost and low-impact, chemical-free, richly textured, visually dynamic spaces that are full of life. Her new book is the Garden Refresh, how to give your yard big impact on a small budget. Now out from Timber Press. Home, I love you more and more. Speaking of plants and place and resourcefulness, this week a celebration of cones, because I'm preparing, as I'm sure many of you are as well, for my annual winter greening of house and garden in honor of the coming solstice and the various winter holidays. For this, I'm collecting all kinds of embellishments, large and small, durable and dainty, from nuts to acorn caps to lichen-covered wood to cones. They are all delightful to the hand and the eye. But the seasonal woody windfall cones are perhaps one of the most iconic of the season's decorations. From the smallest to the largest, they are quite literally miraculous in their artfulness, but also their ingenious engineering to get their jobs done. That job, of course, is reproduction. Cones are produced on a handful of different kinds of plants, but it is the cones that are the reproductive structures on our gymnosperms, conifers, that are perhaps most well-known and most iconic at this season of the year in the Northern Hemisphere. The gymnosperms are those earliest of our seed-bearing plants, which co-evolved after the seedless, spore-reproducing plants like ferns, but which evolved before the now more dominant, flowering seed-bearing plants known as the angiosperms. Gymnosperm translates to naked seed because the seed of a gymnosperm is held exposed on the scales of their seed-bearing cones. This allows for receiving pollen and for then dispersing the seed once it is fertilized and mature. The flowering angiosperms evolved a little later, and they characteristically hold their eggs and then fertile seeds in protective ovaries in the flowering structure itself. The jobs of cones are various. As already noted on pines and some other coniferous species, some cones produce pollen and other cones produce seed. In pines, pollen is produced in staminate, sometimes known as male cones 
After fertilization, scales develop on the cone. In pines, generally two seeds develop on the upper surfaces of each scale of the seed-bearing cone. The cone and a resin coating on its outer surface protects the naked seeds on the conifers from varying and unpredictable climatic weather conditions and from being eaten by animals. Some cones open and close multiple times while still attached to the branches of a tree. When cones turn from fleshy and green, although sometimes even other colors like pink, purple, or bluish, to woody and darker colored, that's when their scales will open and their seeds will be released. In some cones, the resin that helps to protect the developing seeds needs fire to melt it open and allow for dispersal, while other cones need co-evolved mammal or bird partners to crack open the cones or seed. As you might routinely observe, coniferous seed nuts emerging from all of these cones are important and relished as food by wildlife of all kinds. But the fun of cones for this time of year is in the great diversity of size, shape, variation, even shades of colors of cones, the universal and sacred geometry of the scale arrangements. They're magnificent. The sugar pine, Pinus lambertiana, produces the longest seed cone, up to 25 inches long, and it is the tallest of pines, reaching 269 feet. Yosemite National Park and Umpqua or Siskiyou National Forests are home to champion sugar pines. Among the spruce, Picea species, Norway spruce produces the longest cones, up to seven and a half inches. Some conifers bear cones even in their youth, the first few years of their lives even, while others, like the Colorado blue spruce, won't typically bear cones until maturity at closer to 20 years. Giant sequoias bear small but distinctive less than two-inch cones, while the cones on Douglas fir trees, which aren't true firs, feature whisker-like bracts that extend down from the pendant cones so ornamentally. In my garden, for now, a nice community of gray pine, sugar pine, Theodore cedar, redwood, spruce, and hemlock cones, paying homage to the durability and the resourcefulness of the coniferous among us, are gathered together for the season to be included on wreaths, swags, and garlands, and then dispersed back into the wild come January. Join us again next week when we visit Gardener's Past as we look to the future in conversation with garden historian and writer Judith Tankard on the seminal work and life of Beatrix Ferrand. Listen in next week. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible by listeners just like you through the support button at cultivatingplace.com. Thank you in advance for remembering us and this work that you value during this season. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.